Welcome to the Pre-Hype Podcast. If you're new to the show, let me give you a little introduction. I'm your host, Henrik Gordelin, and I spent my career building new ventures, both as a co-founder, as an investor, and as an advisor. In this podcast, I'm inviting really smart entrepreneurial people out for a walk and talk while we get some coffee and talk about some of the skills and the tools and mindsets they use to solve problems in a scalable way. I hope you enjoy today's show. So first, you are Nora Glass, but you're not the Nora Glass that comes up when you Google, except when I Google today and you go Nora Glass, it's your picture, but it's the founder of Twitter's kind of bio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Co-founder of Twitter, someone I now know a lot about. It, it's a really interesting thing uh, that for a while was like a funny joke at like a bar with, with like friends or coworkers of like, you can tell somebody like, go go search who the founder of Twitter was and it's my picture. And they're like, no, his name's really Noah Glass. And, but it's, uh, that's not me. It's Noah E. Glass and I'm Noah H. Glass. Um, by the way, I have to comment on uh, I've listened to two episodes of this podcast and prepping for this conversation. The first was our mutual friend, Noah Breyer. And the second was uh, Noah R. Schwartz. <laughs> and I have to ask you, are you just like going alphabetically by, <laughs> by Noah's? Because like, no, it, was, it was Noah Breyer, Noah B, Noah F, and now Noah G. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. I think you're onto me. I think so. The thing that I was keen to talk to you about was not kind of like a specific thing you've done or a specific tool you use, but it's really about resilience. And I think in a, in a world where we think about startup founders as they build a business in a few minutes, they make it into a unicorn, and they're kind of like these rock stars of our century, then you in many ways kind of like are the opposite. You been running your business from 2005. Right. You're pretty discreet as a person. In my view, has this very impressive, kind of like steady win the race. I have a mission. It'll take whatever time it'll take, but I will win this. And, and I think that is, for me, is a very impressive kind of attitude. And so what I was hoping to unpack was like, like how, how you think about it and maybe what are some of the tricks that you use to stay in it when I'm sure like you are faced with times where you doubt that this is the right thing to do. Also, wow. you're an incredible, nice person, a smart person. Thanks, so man. I feel the same get, way about get, you. Getting a coffee, it seems like a good thing. Uh, great. Well, I like that lead-in. I mean, I, I feel like that's true, that we are not a high flyer. In fact, we were recently featured in TechCrunch for a fundraise at the end of last year. And they described Olo as a, a low-flying uh, company in our space. And at first, that sort of like bothered me because low-flying doesn't sound like a favorable description. But uh, I actually really like it because it's true. We, we have been, as a B2B company in a largely B2C-dominated space, and more broadly in like a B2C-dominated tech and entrepreneurial, at least press scene, um, we are pretty low flying, and uh, we can make, now it, now we're get make it an interesting street. podcast if we <laughs> cross the street. So maybe for the people who don't know Ola, yeah, it started by being a text message service before smartphones, right? Yeah, I mean, if I really go back, the the insight initially was we're all about to have smartphones. This was back in two thousand 
three and four that I really started thinking about this. I became convinced we were all about to have smartphones, they would become ubiquitous, and that they would fundamentally change the way that people interacted with retailers, but primarily restaurants. So you'd be able to order ahead, pay ahead. When you arrived at the restaurant, the food would be ready for you, and then you could skip the line and not have to go through the, the typical process of waiting to place the order, placing the order, waiting for the meal or the coffee to be prepared. And I thought, you know, this would be better for the consumer and also for the retailer. So that was the beginning of the idea. Many years before iPhone was announced, many years before Android, many years before Uber was a thing. The problem was when we were trying to bring this to life and actually put it into the first restaurant location, coffee shop, we realized like nobody has smartphones. Uh, so we had to take a step back and create a version of Olo, a more rudimentary version that could work with text messaging. And then very quickly, mobile web and web ordering and then app ordering. My wife played the role of our, our first CMO in the company and I should say like that, that is a big part of the answer to your larger question, like a supportive family, parents, wife, uh, at that point girlfriend has been like a huge part of what's kept us going. Hi there. Hello. What do you want? Uh, just a small drip coffee would be great. Thank you. Um, I'll have a Americano with some milk. Yeah? I'll do medium. What about you, sir? Small, please. Yeah. I guess like Starbucks have really done well with their mobile app, right? And in the coffee space, I kind of started to do that. Uh, yeah, we just uh, rolled dunk, out Pete's dunk. coffee oh, today. Pete's? Yeah, which today? is a, a fun one. Today we announced the national rollout of Pete's. Um, that seemed to be really... Thank you, by the way. Of course. That seemed to be really working, right? Yeah. You know. But I'm aware of the irony that we're talking about pre-ordering for coffee and we're here <laughs> not pre-ordering for coffee. Did you think it was While coffee you're asking coffee? a question about why hasn't it uh, achieved great, great adoption. <laughs> Ironically, when I, um, when I order like Starbucks, I always do the mobile thing. Just as easier and you can do it ahead of time. And yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. You okay for walking out? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The benefit of like you get to skip the line, that's our trademark, that's the core principle for the consumer benefit, but that is about being a VIP, about having this special access. And one of my wife's ideas around where we should launch our first cluster of restaurants when we brought the technology to New York was do it in Rockefeller Center. And the idea of that really illustrates that kind of VIP insider access. Because Rockefeller Center is this interesting combination of tourist traffic yeah. and everyday business consumer traffic. So you have people that work inside Rockefeller Center in the larger complex who are, when it rains, not leaving that complex and coming down to that little food court area and getting their food there. And then you have all of these tourists with a total different calculation of the value of time. And so they're taking their time, studying the menu board, and it really frustrates all of the business people. And so her insight was, wouldn't it be great to give those people a way to skip the line and get their order faster and not have to wait behind all of the tourists? And that was why that became like the cluster of restaurants that we launched. I think first or second, we launched a couple of different clusters. Wall Street was one, Madison Square Park area was the second, and then Rockefeller Center. So you started 
long time ago now. <laughs> Coming up on 14 years ago uh, in June, yeah. And, you know, we've only done park for seven years now, and that feels like a long time. How cognitive are you about that you've been doing it for so long, or are you just kind of like in the midst of it and, and then time flies? I'd say like there was this very long initial period, which was starting the company in 2005. And now when I look at it, I kind of blend that all together up until at the end of 2012, almost. We were quite small. We were like a 12-person company. We were signing individual restaurants and then a couple of chains. We got some press that was very exciting. We signed some bigger chains. But there were a number of companies doing things that seemed a, a bit like what we were doing. More of an online ordering focus, less of a mobile focus, mobile ordering. But we were kind of one in a pack of competitors and a small company and it was a great period of time. It was a period of time where it forged some really tight friendships. We have talk about one another, think about one another as family members that we grew up together. This is when people were meeting their true loves and getting married and maybe starting to have kids and like we, we all went through this the young adulthood together, this group of, of a core 10 people that were the nucleus of the company and everybody had the same profile where they were smart people without specific skills and I think of them as like stem cells you know they were going to come into the organization without specialized skills but then you know, figure out what they wanted to do and specialize in and that that truly happened some people went into sales some into products some into customer success some into more administrative roles uh, but we all just kind of found our, our niche do you know why you didn't give up because obviously in this very impatient time you know we both know people who run companies that with 10 people for a long time and at one point go well this is not going to be like yeah. quote unquote venture scale so i'm going to hand whatever money i raised back to the investors and then try something else yeah look we always had proof points of success we always had an order count that was kind of doubling year over year. And in the early days, those were small numbers, and then you know, it kept on having that trend year over year. We felt like there are glimmers of great success here, and it is a massive opportunity that we're going after if you think about the restaurant industry as an $800 billion market in the US. Yeah that inevitably is going to have the kind of e-commerce disruption that other industries were experiencing. I think also we were pretty like battle-hardened by the period of 2008 and 9. I mean, we, we lived through, we were lucky we had just raised uh, a meaningfully sized Series A in March of 2008. It was just before Bear Stearns collapsed. It was just before the recession. and. We were in this enviable position by comparison where we had a lot of capital. We had the ability to really control our burn. We've been going after this B2C orientation of trying to acquire consumers to order directly through our platform. And that was costing us $150,000 on a monthly basis for customer acquisition. And we were netting 10,000 new customers each month. So 15 bucks per customer. And after the recession hit, 
we made this hard decision of like, let's not do that part of the business anymore. We can save $150,000 a month uh, on consumer acquisition and instead we can go after selling directly to restaurant chains and having them onboard their consumers as a B2B version of ourselves. And that was a really good decision. It was a hard decision at the time because I'd always envisioned our company as a B2C company and be more of a high flyer um, in a publicly known company. We still all sort of go out to cocktail parties or family gatherings. People will say, so tell me what you do again. Oh, so you guys are like Grubhub or you guys are like Seamless. We're like, nah, well, it's sort of like that, but it's like, it's B2B. We work with larger brands. But the experience 2008 and 9 was we're going to be B2B. We're going to have a, a longer road, a slower growth uh, because of that. And we embraced this uh, phrase within the company of embrace the suck. <laughs> and that was borrowed from, I think, the Marines mm-hmm. about like, you know, grit. And if you can withstand more than the opposition, then at the end of the day, you're going to win. And but I think, you know, like one thing that I've always found in the times where the companies I've been involved with are having a tough time, and they, of course, all have tough times is that the more that you work with people that you care about, the easier it becomes. And that's why, you know, like having a crew is so important, right? Because, you know, like, at least you can have a light step, kind of you'll walk in the morning because you're looking forward to go in and talk about how much it sucks with the people you work with. Oh, totally. So I think first and foremost, we, we all have really supportive families. That's something that's true of everybody uh, within Olo. And we kind of came to look at one another as like the second family. And uh, we actually use those those words. Is that difficult when you grow bigger? And I'm asking because I can definitely feel that in Bark, for example, we definitely have like different generations of people that came in, right? There's the original gangsters. I like the notion of stem cells. And then as we've grown very fast, we have new people coming in who, you know, is as loyal to the mission as the original people, but like just have a little bit less of organizational history. And I think sometimes it can be, it's difficult not to sound a little bit like a fake when you talk about like family and people go like, yeah, yeah but I've been here for three weeks. <laughs> you know, like, I'll tell you what's super cool. I, so I still do a welcome to Olo one-on-one meeting with every new employee that we have. So just for a sense of scale, I'm talking about an era when we were 12 people, we're now 180 people as of this week. So 15 times the size that we were in that first nearly seven year period. Um, And that often comes up, this like family first mantra, which is literally on our wall, the, the number one value and now it's manifested itself in a company that is majority remote. So it's about 55% of the company now doesn't work out of the New York City headquarters, all domestic but different parts of the country. And for that crew, what family first means is I get to pursue my career and be close to my family and not have to waste an hour or two hours of my day commuting into an office. And it's this amazing unlock for us of talent all around the country. And by the way, those people that were like that initial group are by and large like still in the company. And it's this amazing thing where we're like we're celebrating so-and-so's 13-year anniversary and so-and-so's 12-year anniversary. And it's like an amazing thing to have people with that kind of legacy 
now in pretty big roles in the company, our CTO, our head of sales on the West Coast, our head of customer success, like these are people who all have been with the company for over 10 years. That's super cool. When you talk family first, and obviously in a startup environment where people are, you know, wasn't it the Alibaba's founder the other day talks about like yeah. the... Like 996. 996. 12 hours a day, six days a week, 72 hours. And family first and remote is a different type of work yeah. method. How do you balance the, yes, everybody should be able to pick up their kid from school with, you know, I also have a business to run. And you know, it's funny. So I, I've been reading those 996 tweets and articles, and I happen to be listening to an audiobook right now about China versus Silicon Valley, but meant to represent these two different work lifestyles. China of a 100-hour work week expected of everyone, Silicon Valley of, I don't know, 40-, 50-hour work week expected of everyone. And our orientation is much more in that softer Silicon Valley kind of model of family first. You know, we have a 12-week parental leave policy. It doesn't matter if you're primary or secondary caregiver. We just want people to bond with their children. Like, that's, that's an important thing. Um, I, I can't imagine working in the other way and not having just massive burnout. And when I know that we're on this long journey together and I want to foster that kind of broader Olo is my family or Olo is my second family kind of belief system, I don't think that that works with working people to the bone 100 hours a week. I know from experience that in the first couple of years I was working 100 hour a week. But I don't expect that of people who are joining the company now, and I don't expect that of myself or my executive team. I do expect when things get tough, when we hit rough patches, that people are going to say, I'm going to pull all-nighters or wake up early to do a release before consumers and restaurant managers are up so that we can get it out in the world. We talk a bit about intensity instead of like time, and that what I hope a lot of the people I work with they they give a shit it needs to matter for them what we do it doesn't necessarily bother them that much if people come in late or they leave early as long as like they work they obviously are effective and and they do good work because they care it's interesting when we look at companies' growth right because there seem to be different things that make them work right and, and I don't think there's like one universal if you just do this then your company will work there seem to be companies that hit the timing completely right. So I was thinking, because we talked about Twitter, like that was a company that for the first two or three years really didn't do much. Like it just was lingering. And then suddenly, you know, for whatever reason, people took to it. Mm -hmm. um, then there's companies where, let's take uh, Unity, the software platform that allowed people to make computer games on the iPhone also had like a bunch of years and then suddenly the iPhone came around and if you wanted to make games on the iPhone, then that was the best platform to do so. In terms of like your guys' growth, you've obviously had like the last few years has been bigger growth than you've seen the first few. Yeah. What do you think changed? For us, the thing that changed about the market was consumers getting smartphones and smartphones becoming ubiquitous and consumers thinking about smartphones as it's not just a content device or an entertainment device this is actually a commerce device. This thing is a remote control that's aware of who I am, my payment credentials, but fundamentally where I am and what's around me. 
And I, I think we owe a lot of credit to Uber for changing the way that people thought of their smartphone. And this thing became a magic trick or a remote control. And so that hit restaurants, which are this like very, very common everyday commercial transaction. And even then, like it took a while for restaurants to understand like, oh yeah, us too, we need to be available on demand for consumers. And it took success like what Starbucks proved with the Starbucks mobile ordering rollout for brands to see you know, in this space, it's not just about pizza getting delivered to you, it's about coffee and it's about everything in between coffee and pizza. Every brand needs to offer the ability to order ahead, view the menu, custom build your order exactly the way that you like it, pay for it and have it ready at a certain time when you're going to show up. And then that's gotten an extra kick by just the delivery revolution that's happened in the restaurant industry, but that's also kind of a, a debt of gratitude owed to Uber. The smartphone revolution didn't just hit consumers, it also hit gig economy workers, and that created this new source of last mile delivery that restaurants could tap into and then make the offering not just on-demand ordering for pickup, but on-demand ordering for a delivery courier to pick up and then deliver to you same hour. And you guys do that also now, right? And that's a big thing that we do, and, and the big development since you and I last spent concentrated time together is we really focused on the on-demand experience, that consumer experience, not just on the front end of ordering, but at pickup. A lot of the work that we did with you all was around how do you make that pickup experience great in different venues, at the counter, at drive-through and in restaurant locations that don't have a drive-through but want to give the convenience of you never have to leave your car. Well, that's great for consumers, but it's even more powerful if you're a delivery courier in a car and now each time that you're picking up orders to go and take them to your next delivery drop-off, you don't have to leave the car. That same convenience of the on-demand experience for the consumer is then replicated many times over for that delivery courier who can shave a lot of time off of their deliveries by getting to stay in their car, have the order run out to them, and be off to make the delivery. That means they can do more deliveries per hour, and that is their metric of success. So we launched a, a product uh, called Dispatch in early 2016 and we've been working on it through the back half of 2015. And what Dispatch did was it put together all of the different delivery service providers that are out there, all of the different companies that have gig economy workers with smartphones that can be tasked to pick up at point A and deliver to point B. It put them all into a single network, the Dispatch network. And then it enabled us to tap into that network through an API that's tightly coupled with our ordering platform so that a consumer could order from a restaurant brand and see a quote for how long it would take to get it delivered and how much it would cost to get it delivered. And instead of the consumer going to pick it up, a delivery courier would pick it up just in time. And what we do is we synchronize the order prep time with the driver arrival time. So if I know the driver's 10 minutes away and the food prep time is seven minutes, we'll send the driver immediately, but we'll wait three minutes before firing the order into the kitchen and that way the driver's arriving right when the order is bagged, ready, and fresh. And they're getting that order and going straight off to the consumer without any latency there at the restaurant. And the consumer is getting the product at peak freshness based on the shortest transit time from food ready to food in mouth. In terms of the resiliency of an organization, you guys, because you went away from acquiring customers and not monetizing, probably also bought yourself some time to kind of like wait it out, right? You know, Big time. And so resilience in many ways is 
Also just about being having cash in the bank, I would imagine. Yeah, so this funding round that we raised, it was the funding round that RRE led in March of 2008, and it was a $7 million funding round. We were, as I mentioned at the time, burning $150,000 in consumer acquisition, and we just shut that off completely and bought ourselves a ton more time. We had this enviable hoard of cash, and we had the ability to wait out the recession, but also an interesting thing happened, which was restaurants were finding that consumers were starting to demand this kind of convenience. And there was a lot of restaurant interest to launch with a B2B version of our platform. So there was a nice fit. I remember it was about a year from making this hard decision to shut down consumer acquisition that I walked into a board meeting and was able to say, we were spending $150,000 a month to get 10,000 customers. Now the restaurant brands are doing that work on our behalf and they're paying us a subscription fee. We're now making $150,000 a month and we're getting 100,000 customers. This is like a much, much more efficient model for us to bring in revenue from the restaurants themselves and to have them doing that work of bringing the end users to the platform. We are have doubling at the same rate if you look back that we were in the early days. We, we in 2018, did 100 million transactions through the Ola platform up from 50 million the year before, up from 25 million the year before, and we're on track to do 200 million this year. Take Grubhub, take Uber Eats, take DoorDash, that puts us the the largest in the field, even though we're a B2B orientation, and even all of us combined are just scratching the surface of an $800 billion industry. Um, And that industry is actually growing because it's taking share out of the grocery industry. We just hit a moment in time in the US where grocery and restaurants are both $800 billion industries. So money spent on food is 1.6 trillion. Over time, more and more are shifting towards restaurants because consumers want the convenience of somebody else preparing the food. How much do you think that this future vision would seem to be that restaurants that deliver doesn't have to have like a physical location on a high street. Yeah, it's a big thing. It's called uh, dark kitchens inside of the industry. And it's something that I first sort of talked about publicly at the end of 2014. I I gave a speech at uh, Web Summit. And the question for the speech was, you know, what will the restaurant of the future look like? And my answer was, it'll be a kitchen with a pickup window. And at the time, that was sort of a controversial thing. People said, like, no, no, people will always love restaurants. And that's, that's absolutely true. Fine dining, sit-down restaurants, table service will always be a component of the market. And there is great entertainment value in that experience. But the bulk of the industry has always been about convenience. I mean, the industry itself is built on the convenience of you don't have to cook. You don't have to go and source the food. Somebody else is doing that for you and giving you just the enjoyable experience of picking what you want to eat and eating it. And I think that is going to be the future of the industry today. If you look at overall transaction count in the restaurant industry, 63% of all industry transactions are food that is not consumed inside of the restaurant. Really? And so in that world, it's inevitable that there will be fewer and fewer dining room square feet and more and more kitchen capacity serving consumers who are consuming the food in parks, at home, in the office, in their car, wherever it is. Yeah. So coming back to like resilience on your pond, tells it. Do you think it had hurt your business? Ever have it helped your business that you are a, I wouldn't say introverted, but like a, a understated, no, understated person? And 
maybe I'm just projecting my own insecurity, but like Bark is a very large company. A lot of people with dogs know us. We've never really been like an industry darling, which was on the cover of like the innovation magazines yeah. or the startup magazines. Yeah. I think a lot of that is just being tactical about PR. I mean, we, we spend money on PR. We're trying to get attention, but we're trying to get attention of the cohort of decision makers that really matter to our business success. And I just don't believe that that's the cover of Inc. Magazine or the cover of the Wall Street Journal. We like never for, get on Inc. Magazine now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm screwed. No, Inc. has been very kind to us in the past. Uh, get backtracking now. <laughs> there were, there were, they did write an article about us. That we had had some of, some like glimmers of that. It was when we were in B2C in orientation yeah. and a brand that consumers gave a damn about. But yeah. I mean, now I like being someone that people inside the industry know. I actually now uh, really spend a lot of my time not even with restaurant executives, but with restaurant shareholders and restaurant industry analysts and people who can chirp in the ear of the decision maker yeah. and sort of in a Marxist, like follow the money kind of way, the people who are really like invested in the success of the restaurants and saying to the restaurant CEO or CFO, you really should talk to Olo about this. They have some good ideas. And if you're not thinking about it in this way, maybe you're missing something. Yeah. Because it is an industry that for decades has worked with a certain model. Yeah. And the people that are in positions of power are the people who came up through that model. There's a lot of path dependency in the industry for that reason. Yeah. So I, I, it's an important. What's up, brother? Right, good to see you. Good. How's everything? Really good, really good. Take it easy. See, I am known by people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like hire somebody. And, cool. and perfectly, that's Stephen who runs Ground Support, the coffee shop. So. Oh, really? That's very convenient. <laughs> sorry we didn't Just go like to his place him, for coffee. Just texted him. Yeah, he's um. going to send you a text. <laughs> see that coffee from somebody else. Not necessarily a shop and kind of like point. Going, I'll try it out. You know, we talk about the Starbucks of the world, but I think most of us, while enjoying Starbucks, also want a Pete's Coffee to be around, also want, like, the diversity in offering. Yep. Do you ever think about, like, that as kind of, like, a, a mission for you guys, or is that just a, a self-serving kind of argument? That... You, you have articulated better than I ever have been able to our mission. I mean, that, that is it. It is to democratize the power of on-demand commerce for all merchants. And on-demand commerce, just to unpack that term to me, is that ability to order something from a local retailer and have it ready and waiting for you when you get there or delivered to you. And the thing that I'm actually maybe most passionate about is this thing that we built with Dispatch, this thing to enable same-hour delivery of third-party delivery couriers arriving to collect something from a local retailer and deliver it to you. I think about it as a, a platform for retailers and not just restaurants. We built it initially for our restaurant customers, but there's no reason why it can't be used by any local retailer as a way of competing against pure play e-commerce competition to say, you're my local customer, I can now let you see everything that's in my inventory and get it picked up and delivered to you same hour. Um, I think a, a ton of credit in our company's success, however understated, is the conviction of people that are involved, the different stakeholders. Is your wife still involved in the business? She's not involved. She's a law professor at Columbia Law School. But she's involved in the way that like, she is my number one consigliere. She's yeah. a person who, at dinner, if I'm like wrestling with a problem, 
oftentimes I will like say to somebody like I need to get back to you on that and they're thinking like oh he's deliberating and what I'm actually thinking is like I'm gonna go home and have dinner and then talk to like my number one advisor get the answer and then come back to that person uh, no ser- but seriously like she, she's very involved in that way wow there you go do you think this is a real pearl there you go that's cool I don't think it is I'll put it here for somebody I was going around New York City, you find... Yeah. I'll show you uh, Just random silly questions. So my, jewels my on the street. mom always taught me that if you, if you see a coin on the street and you feel that it's too small to basically like bend down and pick it up, then you're disrespecting money and money won't come to you. And so as a result, that superstition have made me basically have my pockets filled of like the dirtiest, most disgusting dimes you can find in New York City. And now, by extension, you pick up every pearl that you and find? now I find pearl and coins, and so, yeah. Uh, I like that. Um, um, and my wife, she uh, she's doing a post-grad in microbiology, so she knows how many germs that they have. <laughs> and so it's always like when my son and I excited, kind of like throwing ourselves over the dirty dime that's been stepped on a billion times, and my wife's like, oh, what if... Married into. There isn't enough Purell in the world to cl- <laughs> cleanse you. Um, yeah, so investors have been just awesome, like sticking with the company for over a decade. I mean, you don't have that kind of investor loyalty or long termism very often in the world. Uh, a lot of customers have been long term customers, but also thought partners. You know, we have a great product advisory council that's guiding us in. Here's the next thing based on Olo's market position you guys should be thinking about. Oh, fascinating. And we have an incredible COO who joined us as employee number 13. And to his credit said, like, you need to write down on paper, like actually codify the thing that has made this place so special and has made people stick around and feel this kind of close family like bond that's gonna become our value statement. That'll be like the blueprint that we use for going and expanding the company and hiring people we need to hire. And it's exactly what we did. And we have, true to form, like hired people that are in the same mold as the early team. And uh, an awesome people and culture team that has made all of that hiring happen. Well, the success couldn't come to a better person. Thank you so much for joining. We're back in front of the office now, so I appreciate it. I'm gonna come and use your restroom. (laughs) No. Thank you so much for listening. I got a favor to ask. If you like the podcast, then it would be awesome if you could share it on social or rate the show so others can find it too. Also, I'd love some feedback. Just tweet me at at Wordlin. I'll be back with more entrepreneurial walks and talks very soon.